0: Welcome back to the program. As we approach the anniversary of 9-11, it's worth noting that the Afghan war has become the longest in American history. Also to think about how many men and women who have served in that war were motivated and inspired to act by those events 13 years ago. My guest Michael Golombeski is one of those. He would go on to become one of the first members of the U.S. Marines Special Operation Team that was created in 2006. His story his eight years of service is a telling snapshot of both the good and the bad and our efforts in Afghanistan. Now he shares his personal and military story in his book Level Zero Heroes. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Golombeski to the program today. Michael, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Well, Jeff, thank you very much. That, that intro was, was, uh, was wonderful. It was very humbling. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about your decision to serve after 9-11. What, what inspired you?
1: You know, uh, you know look, looking back, you know, nine 11 It's it's just one of those events. It was so, it impacted everybody uh, in a way that they had never been touched before, uh, for, for, for especially for the, the generation that ended up being the ones to fill the ranks uh, when it came time to go into Afghanistan and then also fill the ranks in, in Iraq. And for, for myself, you know, I was twenty six when nine eleven happened. I lived out in Colorado. I had a had a life. I had a you know. I, I had a job. I used to drive tractor trailers for a dairy. Uh, when nine eleven happened, and it was just one of those pivotal moments where, you know, you, as a man, you realize that, okay, our country, the the place that has fostered me and has has given me all these opportunities, is directly under attack, and and I'm a a, a will a willing and able. Uh, man to be able to go into service, to be able to join the uh, the military. I've got you know two arms, two legs, and uh, I, I made the conscious decision to go into service because not only did I feel it, it, it was my personal responsibility to do so, to uh, you know to ensure everything that I had been allotted up to that point would be there for somebody else. Uh, so it, it was actually a, a very simple decision to make. Uh, and, and it was made by thousands of others uh, on that day or, or, or the weeks uh, preceding it. Uh, you know, so I, I quit my job. I I left my, my little tiny apartment I had, and, and I, I went to a boot camp out in San Diego, California, and ended up doing eight years uh, in the Marine Corps, five deployments, uh, two to uh, 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 Iraq, one to Afghanistan. Uh, and I was very fortunate towards the end of my career to uh be able to go into this new branch of uh uh component of US SOCOM which the Marine Corps was now a part of I, I was uh, had an opportunity to go do that and to go down to the teams and, and to work with this this new you know this new thing called Marine Special Operations and uh you know got forward deployed to Afghanistan and uh it was just an honor to fight alongside these guys it was it was nothing short of a uh, you know a memorable experience that i was uh you know allotted
0: tell us a little bit about your initial deployment where did you go what unit were you with tell us a little bit about that
1: so it, i i went into the marine corps with an open contract not really having a, a specific job designated to me uh so i basically just went in, uh, in in combat arms which means i could have been a tanker i could have been a uh, in field artillery or I could have been on AAVs, which are kind of like the floating tanks that they use for amphibious landings. Uh, I drew the lucky straw and became a field artilleryman, which anyone who's been in field artillery knows that it's probably the worst job ever uh, because all you're doing is lifting uh, really extremely heavy artillery rounds and just loading a gun and firing it, loading the gun and firing it. Uh, So I ended up spending my first four years, uh, first two deployments, uh, as a field artillery guy. And, and on my second deployment, was actually my first time uh, sent to Afghanistan. Or not Afghanistan, to Iraq. And when I went to Iraq, I, I, we didn't deploy as field artillery. We deployed as just regular infantry guys. So I, I got to experience at a... Uh, not a young age, because by that time I'm, I'm 27 or 28, but as a, a, a young Marine... I was able to be given the opportunity as a corporal to be a squad leader, you know, to have, uh, you know, guys under my command and and to be out on foot and and have this responsibility and just kind of start developing myself as a Marine. Uh, And and after that deployment, I realized that field artillery wasn't what I was really meant to do. Uh, So I ended up changing jobs into my second enlistment to become a forward observer. Uh, because I wanted to work more hands-on with the guys on the ground. I wanted to uh, bring to them something that I thought I was capable of doing, and and as a forward observer, you're responsible for being the link between the guys on the ground and the artillery pieces or the mortar sections that are are in the rear. You provide that support to these guys, and, and it was a great move. It, it was something I loved. I, I, was, I was good at it. And I was passionate about it, and I, I really enjoyed the people that I was supporting in, in that capacity. Uh, so, so as I progressed, I, I, the next deployment was with uh, the 22nd MU, which is a Marine Expeditionary Unit. It's basically the floating... 911 uh, force. That's they have one in, in the Pacific region. They have one in the Atlantic region. And those are the anytime you hear of an embassy being overrun somewhere, and they send in the Marines and they secure it. Well, that's where they come from. They come from these muse And uh, I, I had a great experience with that. I got to uh, you know we, we, we traveled to a lot of countries in the Middle East region. So you know we get to go to Kuwait. We get to train with the Jordanian Army. We uh, Uh, We got to do some support operations off of Somalia and and got to go into Kenya and the Horn of Africa. So I got a a really good uh, regional experience out of that, different cultures, same area, but a a, a real good understanding of the dynamics in the area. Uh, Then by my fourth deployment, I got the the blessed honor to go back into Iraq as a fire fire support guy. And uh, I I was uh, up in the... Actually, along the Iraq and Syrian border, uh, where the crossing point is in, in the, I guess, the large area there is Al-Qaim and, and the uh, town of Huseba, which is right on the border. Uh, and it wasn't until that deployment that, you know, I had reached the rank of uh, Staff Sergeant at this point, which is an E-6, and the word was about this new component that finally the U.S. Marine Corps was going to get a chance to join U.S. SOCOM, United States Special Operations Command. Uh, because up to that point, as, as people know, the Marine Corps falls under the Department of the Navy. And the Navy was already fulfilling that requirement, to SOCOM, with the Navy SEALs. Uh, but what had grown out of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan is these amazing things that Marines were doing and the, the Department of Defense telling, finally got smart and, and, and demanded that the, the Marines give up a component and come into special operations because you guys do what you guys are doing amazing so when you come over to special operations you're just going to do amazing in special operations because that's just who marines are by nature and uh i was allotted a chance to uh kind of jump ship and to join the very early stages of marine corps special operations which goes by the, the call sign marsoc uh now, as my job as a forward observer, that put me in a very unique opportunity as a, an enlisted guy to become a qualified air controller, uh, which which is really unheard of because up until that point, the only guys that were uh, qualified air controllers were officers, uh, and they were normally pilots that were kind of serving a, uh, a ground rotation as part of their uh, progression as an officer. Uh, so, But MARSOC, made it eligible for enlisted guys like myself to go to these schools and become a controller. So I, I joined the 2nd Marine Special Operations Battalion in January of 2009. I went through my schooling, um, came back and got assigned to Golf Company. Uh, within Golf Company, I got assigned to Team 2 as their JTech, as their Joint Terminal Attack Controller. And my job uh, was very simple. It is to Go out with the teams, with the guys on the ground, and be that link to the aircraft above uh, because JTACs have very uh, specific and technical type of training, and they become qualified so they actually have release authority. Uh, they're the only ones that can clear hot a piece of ordnance because they have the training, they have the ability to integrate uh, you know, large... Uh, munitions like two thousand pound bombs within close proximity to guys on the ground so that's why it's it's so important to have these controllers and uh you know then that brings us to the beginning of the book where the where the story starts and uh it's just a, a, an amazing an amazing story because it first of all it gives people the first look into marine corps special operations it's the first book and uh the, the way that I wrote it i i really didn't want to make it heavy with military jargon. I didn't want uh, I didn't want you to have to be a, a, a veteran or a former military guy to understand the book because I thought the story was that important that I wanted to open up the uh, the the fan base or the reader base so that everybody could read it and and get the message that you know is laid out because when you think of Afghanistan uh, Afghanistan is this massively you know big ball of twine that has to do with, you know, Taliban, corruption in the Afghan government. You've got uh, different NATO forces involved. You've got the rules of engagement. Are, are we winning? Are we not winning? Uh, you know, are we pulling out? Are we staying? What's going on? And I wanted to take that big, uh, kind of big mystery of Afghanistan, and it compresses down into one valley. And you follow the story of one team. You follow the individuals. They have names. They have families. Uh, and you experience this all with them, so you have a really first hand account of what it 's like to operate in this condition and when you get to the end of the book, you don 't realize it, but you actually have a larger understanding of the war in Afghanistan, and not only in Afghanistan, you have a larger understanding of modern warfare, uh, you know what it was like uh, to fight in Afghanistan or uh, in Iraq, uh, you know what we could face with uh, ISIS, or, and, and even as we go forward, because this type of warfare isn't going away. This is modern warfare uh, as it is today. You know, we, we still have that other component that we could deal with. With When you're talking about, like, Russia, that's more traditional, conventional, uh, you know, tank maneuvers and things like this, but when you're talking about the Middle East in this region, this is the type of warfare that is going to be conducted. And now, you know, hopefully with this book, People have a better understanding of what is required uh, to win, and 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 what what should be uh, what should be avoided, uh, so not to so not to lose, so not to make those same mistakes twice.
0: In your own experience, how was your time in Afghanistan different than the time that you spent in Iraq?
1: You know, <laughs> completely different regions, uh, completely different uh, style of fighting. Uh, when when you, when we were in Iraq. Uh, the main insurgency force that we were fighting was a lot of influx from different countries of, of fighters coming in because it basically became this this uh, you know free for all battleground where hey the U S is here you know everybody just come everybody who's ever wanted to fight the U S just come on into Iraq and you can get to fight them uh, and, and and it brought in a lot of the the young uh, uh, extreme Muslim fighters that basically just, you know, they wanted to go have their their little jihad summer break and, and go fight the Americans. So that force is a lot different, you know, because they, they weren't highly trained. Uh, when the fighting got real hard, they would they would call it quits. They're like, no, this is a little too much. Uh, you look at Afghanistan, now you're talking about a, a different type of, of enemy you're going up against, you know. Uh, the Taliban are very regional. Uh, you know, one cell in one area... Uh, has been operating there for, you know, generations with that family. I mean, that is their piece of terrain. Uh, they know it inside and out. They, uh, they have trained in that climate. They're able to climb the, the hills fast. They, they know the fastest way to get, you know, down to the riverbed. Uh, they have a lot of the, the, the leftover, uh, weaponry that they had gotten from the Russians. So, you know, the AK-47 he's had has been handed down from his father and his grandfather, uh, and there's been a lot of training, and they're more cohesive as a fighting unit, not like in Iraq where you've got a bunch of individuals together and you're trying to fight. Well, the Taliban have better tactics, and they're actually better fighters uh, than the insurgency was in Iraq. And that's what you see more of uh, when you're looking at the characteristics of ISIS. They are more like the Taliban than they are like the ragtag insurgency uh, that was uh, infesting Iraq.
0: And given the amount of time and the number of deployments that you had in Afghanistan over an eight-year period, give us a sense of how the war, how the battles changed, how the tactics that you had to engage in and that the Marines had to engage in changed over time to accommodate what you were seeing.
1: Well, you, you know, it, 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 it's always like that. with the, Even with the initial ground invasion of uh, Iraq and then uh, Tora Bora when we first went into Afghanistan, uh, people were given a a very large umbrella objective get in there, you know uh, uh, remove any immediate threats, establish a foothold in the country which which is 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 great because you 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 give these very uh, high reaching uh, goals to be accomplished, but you leave all the nitty gritty and all the details. Uh, to the guys that actually have their necks on the line, the guys that are actually pulling the triggers. They get to, they get to make the call uh, day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute on how to get that done. Uh, as the war drags on, it, 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 it slowly, uh, you know, once the, the, I hate to use the term hierarchy, but the military hierarchy gets embedded into the the war zone, and uh, now you have, you know, you know, very high-ranking general officers which uh, creates this kind of connection back to the politicians in D.C. and uh, you know, all the other non-war fighters have, have more of an influence into the actual uh, ground combat operations uh, via this, you know, this murky gray channel between generals and uh, the, the politicians in D.C. And as the war gets more and more progressive, uh, you know, especially with the, the coverage of media this, these days. I mean, something that happens, uh, you know, if, if a child is, is, is uh, accidentally killed in Afghanistan, it's all over the news in the U.S. in a matter of minutes. Uh, so it's, the influence of the media has really, uh, you know, shaped the approach and the policies of the politicians who, you know, put the pressure on, on the, the commanding officers, the generals, and it, it, it all trickles down. And then who's at the very bottom? Well, the guy that's actually out on foot patrol, uh, you know, throwing grenades and, 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 and sleeping in the mud. Uh, it all eventually trickles down to him because he's the one that actually makes uh, life and death decisions, not only for himself, not only for the people uh, around him, but but for the, the civilian population. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, they are the ones that have to win the war uh, when it comes down to it, because they're the ones that are out there uh, in the mix, in the villages, interacting with the, the, the local government, training the force that's hopefully going to replace them when they pull out and and, and prop up the region. And t- so, uh, you know, towards the end there, uh, the, the, the big uh, hot topic uh, button or, or, or event was having a civilian casualty, which was, uh, it, it got to the point where, uh, you know, no service member, no 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 warfighter that's trained and equipped and given the responsibility to go in and fight combat. No one is going to, uh, uh, willingly and purposely target a, a, a unarmed, a, a, civilian an innocent or, or to go in there and just, just cause, uh, uh, damage, uh, collateral damage for, for no reason. It's just not going to happen. That's not what we do. It's not what we're trained to do. We're professional fighters. Uh, so you know they they kind of take that responsibility away from the guys on the ground making the decision and they start putting these blanket rules and restrictions and they 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 think they're doing it in the, in the best cause uh for for winning the war or stabilizing the situation but what they're really doing is they're just hampering the guys that are that have to uh truly accomplish the mission
0: and in that regard tell us a little more about the marine special operations and what its initial mission was, and more specifically, what your mission was as part of Team 8222?
1: Uh, our, our team was was very simple, very cut and dry, and, and, it's, and it's what not only the other special operations teams in Afghanistan, and when I say other special operations teams, I'm talking about uh, Army Special Forces, uh, which their teams are called ODAs, uh, or or the Army Ranger Battalions, and even the conventional forces, the regular... Uh, you know we had straight leg eighty second airborne paratroopers uh, occupying the, the, the fob with us, even the other NATO countries I mean we all really had the same uh, type of mission. some responsibilities were bigger, some some were more focused on on certain tasks, but they were really to uh, stabilize regions they were assigned, create a safe environment, uh, give the the Afghan government breathing room to get a foothold and, and, and to establish and then also to train their partner forces they, You know, p- we partnered up with our Afghan army forces and our job was to mentor them, to show them how to be a, a fighting unit, show them how to uh, be professional soldiers how to stand on your own and be able to uh, uh, maintain and defend what, what has been created here. When we pull out, we're basically training our replacements, uh, w- which which is a heavy you know a heavy responsibility. And then also you know special operations does more uh, precise targeting when when it comes to uh, you know helping to that, that whole process of, of stabilizing an area. You know, ground forces are good for going in and clearing and, and, and holding places. Special operations is more surgical. We want to go out and take out the main guys. We want to we want to go and get and kill the guy who knows how to make IDs. Uh, uh, when everyone else is, is killing IND and placers, well, we're going to go get the guy that has been training them, and we're going to remove him from the equation.
0: Tell us a little bit about the attitude after all the years of fighting in afghanistan and was there a sense of frustration that it had gone on so long
1: uh you know it's it's hard uh i mean a, a, after years and years of uh, fighting uh frustration always always sets in, in in some point you know and i i i had five deployments in eight years that's uh that's you know that's not a little amount and uh Every deployment is different, and, and and the thought process of, uh, you know, once you're down in the mission, you're you're actually doing it. The whole thought process of, uh, you know, what what exactly is being asked of me here? What's ex- what's it being asked of our unit to accomplish? How does this relate to the the, the bigger war effort? And you know, it, as I talk about in the book, you know, there's a lot of points there where guys have doubt, uh, but also understand that yes, you can have doubt, you can have, uh, you know, you can have regrets, you can have grudges uh, against the way things are going. But the thing that always comes back, and the only thing, and the thing that that binds war fighters is that commitment to each other. Okay, you know, we're gonna the mission's been assigned. We're gonna accomplish it. I may not like it, but I'm gonna do it to the best of my ability. And I'm not going to drop my pack on the ground, and, uh, and I'm going to continue to uh, watch over the guy on my left and my right. And good, bad, ugly, indifferent, black or white, we are going to get through this. And uh, we're going to do the best that we can. And, and, and really, that's what separates uh, the, the, the modern American warfighter from all these other thug groups that are in the Middle East. Uh, they're not professional soldiers. They're just brutes.
0: Michael Golombeski. The book is Level Zero Heroes. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Absolutely, sir. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right
1: back.